0: Welcome to the podcast. This is your boy, Galileo, Gell, And this is Common Conversations. And as you know, I have my greatest host with the most is sitting over here across from me.
1: Hi, friends.
0: That's good. Doesn't that make you smile when she does it? Like, hi, friends. Like, I, we were, we did this thing the other day, and she does hi, friends so well. Like, I started doing it, and then I was looking at this dude like, you're not my friend. Like, why did I say that? But I felt so good talking to him. And I'm a bit of an introvert, although we podcast, and we do radio, and we do all these live events. And yeah, it's just so fun. So I love when Missy says hi, friends. She just brings. Such a smile and a joy. It makes your heart just just open and gleam. You can almost see the sun rays coming through. You know, all, The building that we're in that has only two windows.
1: Yeah, the clouds part, the sun comes through.
0: Absolutely. God yes. walks in and says, hello. Or, <laughs> no. hi. Whichever one.
1: Hi, friends.
0: That, that's, that's God's voice. Hi, friends. That is. That's God's voice. I,
1: I, how, that's how I hear
0: it. We're running with it. Everybody, look, if you listen to common Conversations, we now have God's voice. If you've never heard it before, some of you are going to hate me. I'm going to get some hate mail and some bad comments, and I'm hoping so. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe just get you engaged just a little bit. But as you know, we've been down this. Journey um, of equity, right, and having mm-hmm. all the conversations. And this particular podcast, I say that on every podcast, uh,
1: oh, this one and all of them,
0: <laughs> and this and all of them, are leading to a uh, public conversation that we're going to have here in either Clarksville or Jeffersonville, Indiana, here soon in October. Mm-hmm. Um, all about domestic violence education, uh, prevention journey, what we need to do to help our community, mm-hmm. or maybe create community, um, but also. Uh-huh kind of take a deep dive into what our blockages are, right? Where are our shortfalls, our shortcomings? Also looking at how we do this work today and how we may need to do it tomorrow. Y'all should see this look that Missy just gave me. So we're going to be all over the place. I hope you stick with me because there are some things that are happening. And today there is no camera in the room. Um, so you're just going to have to imagine Missy's face. Maybe I'll find a picture, throw it up on Facebook wow. right at this moment so we can see it. Um <laughs>
1: Uh, there's sounds everywhere, and some of them are coming out of my stomach for no reason. I don't understand.
0: So if you hear the car rumbling by, it's Missy's stomach. It's
1: not the car rumbling by. It's me.
0: It, is it? Uh, I'm telling you, I don't think anybody can hear it.
1: Oh my gracious! It is so loud. It's so it's loud. Ridiculous. We
0: should stick a mic on your stomach and just let your stomach be a part of the podcast.
1: Uh, it's got
0: a whole conversation.
1: It is. It is saying all <laughs> of the things. And I don't know why.
0: So look, she gave me this big old smile. So I just go ahead and introduce our guest today. And we're just going to just have just around just a roundabout conversation thing. We're going to say all the things and you just get to share with us.
1: <laughs> so friends, we have Zanibia Law with us. Uh, she is with the Center for Women and Families in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Zanibia, what exactly is your title now? And tell us your your journey through the center.
2: Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am the director of the Southern Indiana Center and my journey woo. It's, that's a, it's been a long journey. I'm going on 11 years. I'm at the Center for Women and Families, and I had several roles, specifically directly with clients who experienced either domestic violence or sexual assault. So anywhere from hospital advocacy to call center, crisis calls, uh, shelter, hospital, legal. I've been around. I've been around mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so that's kind of been my, my journey. It's just figuring out what ways I can support someone. And now in a leadership role, I'm able to support in a different way.
1: Thank you for that. So as a reminder to you listeners, and also, and we just kind of discussed this with Zanibia that this podcast believes that, you know, the, the everyday individual who doesn't intersect these systems, who doesn't interact with these systems, has some beliefs about them. We believe, for instance, that if the help is needed, the help is there. And we believe that good things happen to good people. I want to talk a little With you about what you know um, about the systems as, as they exist, and what people believe about the about individuals who find themselves in need of your services. So before we got on, Mike, you mentioned that you've been in spaces and heard some really interesting things in your 11 years. And so I'd really like to explore that more. Tell us about what you have heard, and if we can name some of these beliefs that people hold, these deeply held, but not always confronted beliefs, and just put, lay them out on the table, that maybe listeners, those are some beliefs that you hold. And let's learn something new together today and be brave in that. Let's let's be brave together. Um, and if again, if you feel the in your body somewhere, something that we say today, instead of judging yourself for that or pushing that away, let's Ask that, let's interrogate it. Let's ask deeper questions about um, why that felt that way for you. So Zanibia, let's talk about that. What have you heard from the community when it comes to the people that you serve?
2: I would say probably one of the things is that it's the organization's responsibility to help a survivor who's experienced domestic violence. And simply put, the organizations can't do it by themselves, right? It takes Mm. the community. So going into the assumption that it's not my problem as an individual, but it's the Center for Women and Families' problem, and they have to solve it for I don't, what's our population here? It's a lot, right? A, you know, how many, just, I mean,
0: if you take both counties, it? It we're about I think over two hundred thousand, so about roughly about three hundred thousand people, give or take.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the Center for Women and Families is gonna. You know, support all everybody, right? (laughs) Uh, So, I think that that's a big misconception that it's the responsibility of the organization. Like, a lot of times when we're having these conversations, when someone has that impression, we do an activity around the uh, social, the socioeconomic model, right? So, we look at the individual level, we look at the relationship level, we look at the society level, and we just go up the chain and we just say, you know, you can make an impact. And let's look at how you can make this impact. So really digging into all the different levels that someone can contribute. And it's not just the organizational level, right? Um, so I think that's a that's something that I hear commonly. Another thing is that, you know, why well, I don't have the capacity to do it? So I, I, I understand that maybe I do have some responsibility, but I don't have the money or I don't have the time. So it's something that they've identified that, they don't have to be able to give. And what I say is, you know, You don't have to give financially. You don't have to, you know, work forty hours plus volunteering. Right? Like, there's other things that you can do. There's always a way that you can be an advocate, whether that is you saying to someone who discloses to you, "I believe you," or saying, "You know what? I I know a resource. I went through this training, or I was at this event and they were talking about domestic violence, and here's a card. You know, it might be helpful for you to give them a call." Right? So anybody can do. referral.
1: Fabulous. So we're hearing a couple of things when people say it's your job. So if any domestic violence occurs in the entire Southern Indiana area, it's yours to fix. So that's an interesting Mm -hmm. perspective. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the center. And and, and then re- revisit the ways that people can help. I was telling Zanibia in the 20 years that I've been in the prevention space and child abuse prevention, I've taken families to a lot of different spaces that were affiliated with the center, you know, to crisis counselors in Scott County, and then that position went away. And then crisis counselors in Floyd County that also was affiliated with the shelter space, and then that space went away. Can we talk about what the center looks like right now in Southern Indiana and kind of that evolution? What, what has changed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So right now the center is, we are considered non-residential, um, essentially, we do have options where we can refer someone and support someone if they do need emergency shelter, but that's not the priority as far as uh, the first thing that someone is being offered when they get to us. So ideally with the program as it is, and maybe I should back up and talk about just the transition part of it. I love it. that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so when we transition, during our transition period, we were trying to figure out what made the most sense for survivors and how can we you know, serve survivors while also being financially responsible, and also having the means, the financial means, to be able to do so. And during those that time when we were having those conversations, uh, surveys were going out from our coalition to survivors throughout Indiana. And some of the things that we were hearing was not, we need emergency shelter that was not the number one thing. Um, the number one thing was really around, you know, making that connection and reducing barriers to access services. So um, through those conversations, through some of that information, we did some more research. We sought out some other programs to see how they were operating. Um, we learned from this place from in Arizona called Eve's Place, and they had transitioned from an emergency shelter to mobile advocacy. So we said, Oh, what's this mobile advocacy thing? What tell us more about this? So, as we learned um, from them, it did a lot of that reducing barriers for somebody. Um, you know, if you remember when we were on Charlestown Road in New Albany, mm-hmm. uh, we were in a location that did not have tra- public transportation. Not at all. Yep. So we had people who struggled to get to us. Um, And then, you know, also we were kind of secluded. Mm -hmm. So if we had someone who needed employment, it's more difficult for you to get employment when there's just a few jobs, right? And not a great space to walk from point A to point B with no sidewalks. Not at all. No sidewalks. We would have, you know survivors trying to walk that and how it's dangerous right? It's dangerous. <laughs> um, so you know so that so we had some barriers to access our services in that way. So with uh, the mobile advocacy again that reduced some of those barriers. So we made the decision in, in 2018 that, that excuse me that at the end of 2018 we would close shelter services and that we would transition in 2019 into a mobile advocacy model. So we made that transition and essentially we expanded services and what we were able to do. Um, So at this time, we're able to see more clients. Uh, When we were an emergency shelter, in order to qualify for those services, you had to have immediate safety concerns, which meant that, you know, if you were experiencing psychological abuse, financial abuse, um, you know, abuse with uh, privilege and the children that you didn't technically qualify For emergency shelter, right? It was more of a, well, we'll listen to you, we'll talk to you about it, we'll try to support you, like over the phone, those kind of things. Um, But that that long-term support for those things were not really happening. We didn't have the resources for it. Um, A lot of funders at that time wanted to fund the shelter. So all the funding Mm -hmm. was being funneled into shelter programming, not necessarily um, outreach or um, anything to do with um, Outside of shelter, so when we transitioned, uh, again, like a lot of different things kind of lined up, and the our coalition came out with the report, kind of showing some of the statistics, what survivors were saying, and um, we moved into the that model, and now we're able to again serve more people. We. Just to describe what mobile advocacy is, like we're literally able to meet them where they are. Um, We can meet them at their place of employment. We can meet them in the community, um, at a park, at a coffee shop, whatever the advocate and the survivor has identified as safe for them. And we know with the domestic violence, a lot of times there is a... Uh, the stalking component to Mm -hmm. that. So that's helped with some of those issues as well because oftentimes the perpetrator will try to track where that person is going. They'll know, okay, well, your route is supposed to be home to work home, well, if we can kind of intercept that and, you know, show up at work, then they don't necessarily know what's going on uh, to be able to, you know, call some balance in that situation. Um, So we've been able to do things like that. We've been able to partner with other organizations, doing uh, support groups and um, even support groups uh, for our program as well. And then, of course, education, Um, getting out into the community because, you know, at some point, I think, you know, prevention has to be lifted up. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. because, you know, we have to be able to get out there and change what's going on, change the mindsets, change the systems, because if not, we're just going to continue to, uh, the analogy of of picking people out of the river, right? I don't know if you've heard of Mm -hmm. of that analogy before. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to go upstream and find out why are people falling in the river and really be able to make a difference. So we've been able to do some of that work as well um, on a smaller scale, but, you know, we're still able to, you know, get out there and make some change. So that's kind of what we're doing now with the new model.
0: I'm curious. I mean, I'm glad you guys did the surveys. In an area like ours that has such high housing, right, and, and low income spaces, now that you guys are no longer in that space, like transitional housing didn't come up as a need for those who are facing domestic violence, you know, who are going from like, again, from an emergency position short-term housing to long-term housing for family as a whole. How do you, well, one, I guess this is a two-part question. In the survey, did you survey people who had already gone through a process and we're in. We are currently now in a safe space, um, and and transitioning into a better life. And were you able to find people who are kind of still in the space, who are still trying to figure it out, who are still trying to get away from a, an, an abusive spouse, bring safety for themselves and their kids, et cetera? And and did did you see any coalition there when it came to that?
2: Yeah. So the so the survey was done by the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and they do have it is published. Uh, it's on their website. So you could go to check that out to see what the population was. So I don't know what the demographics was as far outside of domestic violence survivors. Um, And for with our program, when we do, we do surveys and we do evaluations. And when we were doing the transition, you know, we had some survivors say, you know, wow, I like which you all are transitioning to, because I would have preferred to have had support while I was still in the abusive relationship and not come to shelter, right? And we we're like, yeah, like that's that's what we want too. So to hear that from a survivor um, was powerful in, in doing the transition. And then to continue to hear that, um, I was doing, pulling our surveys just this recent um for some of our our funders and, you know, just seeing that survivors are saying things like, you know, I I don't know where I would have been. You know, I was able to figure this out. I was able to get housing. I was able to do these different things that, you know, I don't know that I would have had the courage to be able to do. So I think, you know, it's kind of changing the frame, like our mind frame of who can we support before it gets to the worst situation. Okay. And I think with how we've looked at it as a I guess, as a movement is we're focusing on the worst incident. But what we want to kind of reframe is let's do something before it gets to that worst incident. So when we meet with people and the way that we are are communicating that to anyone who's receiving services or, uh, you know, if you know someone who's experiencing these things, they don't have to have a serious altercation in order to qualify for services. Like get them services when they're questioning is this a healthy relationship? Like what? I don't feel comfortable. Like maybe they're, you know, calling me out of my name a lot and maybe they're telling me what I should wear. And I don't know if that's okay. Talk to, talk to us, right? Give us a call and we can like support some of that and, and really talk that out with you because ultimately, you know, we're not telling anybody what to do. We're, we're asking them like, what do you want in your relationship? And what is healthy to you? Like, how does that make you feel when they're calling you out of your name and telling you what you need to wear? And, you know, is that is that helpful for you? Is that what you want? Right. Um, so it's really about supporting somebody before they even get to that situation.
0: So in, in this preventative stage, and this is this is impressive, I think. So in this preventative stage, if I heard you correctly. So yesterday in a an emergency phase, it was it was physical violence mm-hmm. first. And then we could we could care. But anything psychological, emotional, financial, we didn't see that as an emergency. And so the services weren't rendered. But in this new model, it's it's an education preventative position where when you meet all those different levels of violence, care is now available. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay, And it's, it's not to diminish the need for that emergency care, right? Because we know that that is still a need, but, you know, let's try to do something different to yeah. where we can support somebody before it gets to that, right? Like, wouldn't you rather if, you know, if someone showed up and said, hey, if you, you know, take this medication and exercise and diet today, right, you'll be able to avoid, you know, I'm predicting your future, right, you'll be able to avoid this heart attack in two weeks. Yeah. When you want to do the preventative stuff, I mean, you know, some people, not right. Miguel, but you know. Yeah, well, yeah, you know,
0: I'll, I'll do everything but the medication, but yeah, yeah I'm with you. But
2: I was, but, like no, you know, no, maybe not. like it is, you know, so like that's something to just like think about, right? It's like, like why, why not have the prevention instead of having the cure, right? Like, yeah. or like why yeah. not think about those things first?
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think about my daughter, right? She's 19 years old. She's exploring, you know, relationships, and you know, I think oh, about boy. the education platform, right? Yeah, yeah, true story, you know. I I mean, and we come from we come from a life of domestic violence like she hasn't had to experience that, which is great, you know, But her mom or grandma. So we in, in some sense, it's it's part of the heritage, right? It just goes along the journey. Um, But I, I love the idea that if there were folks and so this is going to lead to a question, we're talking preventative relation, you know, violence. Right. How do we how do we identify safe relationships how do we identify you know when something right could potentially go awry where what are what are red flags in that re- in that space i mean I think I think that is super helpful for you know young women and young men alike who are going through that journey so now I'm, I've got a question in a sense a preventative model right where is this being produced educated are, are you starting you know definitely in southern indiana in our last podcast we talk about you know sexual assault and some of the violence that happens to youth here locally we talked about a stat that came out in in 21 where there was like 181 percent increase in domestic violence and 98 i think there were 98 deaths in clark county alone so where are we where are we teaching? Like, where is this an ongoing education space? What age are you are you putting it out there, and so on?
2: Yeah. So we are we get into the schools, right? Um, so generally, middle school, some high school, and to talk about those healthy relationships, right? So we have we have different types of of exercises. You mentioned a red flag. So one of those exercises that we can do is a red flag, green flag. And we talk about the different um, types of relationships and that sometimes it's not always black and white. It's not always like clear. People can be in a relationship and um, maybe feel like, well that was okay, right? So like an example of that would be, we call it kind of the honeymoon phase where you are lovey-dovey, you know, you're texting all the time and calling. You're like, where are you at, boo? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, that there's a period of of time where it's like, okay, yeah, you're getting to know that person. But then when it becomes, uh, this is now just how it is all the time, you have to say where you are. Now you're starting to feel uncomfortable because it's like, well, I'm with my friends. Why do you keep calling me? Like, you know, what's happening. So then it starts to move into their red flag area. So having those nuanced conversations, I think, um, has been helpful in just hearing the students like talk about that kind of stuff. And and they are smart. Like they they will bring some stuff out in the conversation. You're like, oh, let me write that down. Like that that's a good <laughs> point. But like in the schools, right? But again, like we talked about before the mics came on. About the community helping, right? We are still a small team. Like, I have a team of, there's nine of us, including me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot, there's a lot of of schools out there. There's a lot of uh, things that need to happen in order to um, support the schools, right? Um, So, we try to partner with other organizations as well. Um, So like with Family and Children's Place, we um, partner with them to do school activities. And, you know, I think it's important for organizations to also know that we are all in this together. So if it makes sense that the work that you're doing can contribute to, you know, violence prevention in our community, let's partner and let's figure out like how we can get into the schools and be able to support that. Got you. Got you. Hmm. So when we
1: were talking about these changes that have occurred in, you know, just the last 11 years that you've been there, but the last, you know, 20, it all comes down to finances is what we kind of identified that. Can you, can you explain that? Was there more money before or are we in a situation now that you're, you are working on being equitable and making sure that your advocates are well compensated? How does that all
2: work? Yeah. So it I feel like, Every answer is always it boils down to money. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> yes, but money though. <laughs> yeah, it's like we could do all the great things, but if we don't have the money, we don't have the people, and we don't have the services, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just that that trickle effect, and so the way that we receive funding. So we have, you know, government federal funding, right? Um, we have the the state and the local. Funding, and then we have local donors, so regular individuals who say, "I'm gonna write a check for a hundred thousand dollars." Listener, if that's you, <laughs> go ahead and write that check. Um, so we have like those different levels of, of funders. So when we when we look at applying for these different funding sources and grants, they have stipulations on what they want um, and and the things that they need in order to give the money. So. Sometimes that means you pass up on that grant. Sometimes that means you don't qualify for that grant mm-hmm. because, um, you know, you that's not the services that you're going to provide. Um, and also sometimes, and just recently, actually, and we have went through this before, where some grants get just cut in general. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, the cuts that are happening right now with VOCA. Mm-hmm. We actually just talked about that with our last guest.
1: So
0: real quick for a lot of people they don't know what VOCA is. Can you explain what VOCA is?
2: Oh man, I'm so used to talking in the acronyms. Right. Uh, let's see it's um Victims of Crime. Yeah, Victims mm-hmm. of Crime Act. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And it's a it's a federal fund. Yes. That supports all the states. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. And so when they when they send money into Indiana that gets trinkled down through whatever county request, how does that work? Do you know?
2: Um, so the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute, they kind of, I don't know the the real term for it, but they kind of own the um, distribution of those funds. Okay. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they, so VOCA is is one of the the funds that they kind of own and hold. Uh, but the, the cuts occurred because some of the changes, like with our previous administration, um, and now we're continuing to see those cuts happen. Okay. And when those cuts happen, that impacts how we're doing our services. That impacts staffing, and it changes. It changes a lot. And we, it, it, it's not something that just happens randomly. It continues to happen. Um, we've had major cuts since I've been in the in this work three times.
1: hmm hmm
2: And um, and it's impacted just everything. Like when I was first here, uh, it was a major impact to shelter. There were some shelter cuts that took place. And then that, again, kind of contributes to um, the financial scope of, of how we're operating things.
1: And I think that that's such an important perspective to know that every time these cuts happen, and it, it's something I really wanted to name in the conversation with you. Um, I know healthy families experience these cuts, and I wanted to say it was around the same time, it was like 11, 12 years ago. And it was a situation that before that we were able to provide services to way more families. But not only that, families of all economic, um, like all income levels and those cuts happened and it, re- it drastically changed the number of families that could be served in the area. But also it really limited not not families of uh, only 250 percent of poverty and below. Yeah, so yeah. you are narrowing your mm-hmm. population and People get frustrated yeah. and they blame you for what you're not able to do now.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and and I think as someone in the service provider community, I'd say, yeah, the, the rhetoric was the center is not doing this. Mm-hmm. The center is not supporting yeah. people in this way. Um, and what is not being seen is if you keep cutting our funding, mm-hmm. what do you expect us to
2: do? Yeah. It's like you have to reprioritize, right? Um, And I hate using this this phrase, but like the biggest bang for your buck, you know. I wish That's I had a exactly better one.
1: how we looked at it too. <laughs>
2: yeah. And you know, so it's like really figuring out like how can you do? You need a restructure? Do you need? And we don't want to lay people off, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked earlier about the fact that advocates. Like social service they don't get paid enough no no they don't they don't get paid enough for what they do and you know so trying to maintain services can be challenging when funding is getting cut
0: so as someone who is this is going to end up being a two-part question i think but for someone who is who has been on the ground boots on the ground involved direct um Work and now someone who is in leadership, um, understanding that there's this cycle of cuts that are happening industry wide, right? Specific to DV or interpersonal violence, is is was this one one of the reasons that you or the you all decided to shift to a preventative model? Does that help in these financial gaps? And then is there an advocate or lobbyist, either at the state or local or even at the Fed level, who advocates for the state of Indiana and its needs?
2: yes um so so yes yeah, so a part of that decision was understanding the finances right and in the transition that you know how how things were going it wasn't sustainable right so figuring out okay what again that biggest bang for the buck right and that's when we did the research to figure out okay like what are survivors saying okay well survivors are saying this so how can we implement that what does that look like okay so who what programs have already started to think in this way so reaching out to um, those programs and getting you know a consultation getting a consultation with them and then making the hard decision to kind of change the way of life, right like this like the way of life of how we were operating before. Um, so so money is always, some piece of, of the puzzle. And then when it comes to the the advocating, so we do have, we're members of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Human Trafficking. Um, so both of them have, uh, they do some lobbying and they're able to kind of advocate for us. So they advocate for an increase, they advocate for um, the different laws that that are coming out that are going to impact um, our, our impact survivors and our services as providers. So they, they're, they're asking us like, okay, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And then um, they're able to advocate for us because we have some limitations as far as what we can do um, as a nonprofit, some of the, the legal ramifications around that, that we're not able to do any of the lobbying ourselves got gotcha, you got gotcha. you
0: thank you so man that's a that's a that's a that's a bit like it's a it's a complex web like so when you hear like missy and i are constantly talking about the void of services or the void of opportunity mm-hmm. and Sometimes being on the outside looking and you're like, man, why are we not doing this? Now, we're, this is kind of a baseline of why we can't or why we shouldn't be. Um, but understand that models have to change. And I think a lot of businesses, nonprofit or otherwise, realize that coming out of COVID. But this is, you're saying this is something that's systemic in a sense of a constant depletion of revenue or opportunities for funding. Um, and I, I wonder now what that model looks like three or four years going down the road with the next cycle of administration that's going to come through. Um, is there any way to predict that?
2: Yeah you know if if you if you figure out a way you let me know cuz okay. I, <laughs> I think that i think how how we've been kind of just taught to look at is that there will always be a cut coming wow Right. That will give like funding will happen. Funding will, will come and then expect some cuts to happen because things are going to shift and change, whether that's the federal level or on the state level. Right. Um, and then you have to think about even like with the state level, your stomach's still round. God help us. God help us.
0: She's got something to say.
2: I, she does. yes. Like even at that state level, right? Like we other organizations, like we don't talk about Federal too. We don't talk about it's competitive. Mm. You, like, we're competing for it. So that's another
1: question. Yeah. Who in this area... I mean, we don't want to name people because we don't want to empower anyone. But like, I don't think also that people realize that that when you put out things, they're called RFPs or requests for proposals. It's, real, it's a real dumb way to do things. But when you put out these RFPs and you're asking people to bid and to compete for this money, um, it creates a situation where you can't get out of your silos. You can't work together and reach across the aisle and say, hey, what are your barriers? See if we can overcome those because you can't show your weakness. You can't show your back mm-hmm. to someone who's coming for you. So instead of reaching out and forming partnerships with other people doing this work, you're competitors. So you stay in your space, I'll stay in my space, because you're going to come for this contract. And that makes it really hard to get things done. And so done you're
0: saying well. there are fiefdoms within the nonprofits who are supposed to be out here serving <laughs> the people?
1: No, no, we're su- no. <laughs> And we're supposed to be able to work together. And when you create these situations, you make it very difficult. Um, even in this conversation, I'm mindful. It's like, let's not... Let's not show your cards too much because this is the reality when you work with nonprofits.
0: But then, how do we really serve the people if we're, we're out here hiding? Right. You know, we're we're all fighting for a pool of money that is supposed to support those who are in a traumatic need, right? And so that we can all thrive and 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 how we you know, that's a that's a crazy concept to say, hey, we're gonna take this pool of money, we're gonna make everybody fight for it. And your job is to help serve the community, mm-hmm. but we're gonna create trauma within you.
1: Yeah. Because the, Man, the unknown, a wicked
0: ass system
1: the, the always the unknown of I'm I'm all in, I'm ten toes down, someone could come and take this from So me. how
0: do we measure for success if we're creating scarcity within our own organizations?
1: That's wow. such a good question. And those yeah. of us who existed kind of before RFPs were the norm, yeah. This wasn't the case. That we could reach across and say, you need help. We need help. This is what we're dealing with. Are you dealing with the same thing? Let's let's give some feedback and say, we've tried this. It didn't work. What have you tried? We could have those conversations. Yeah. And when we start competing, everything changes.
0: So, and, and I know this is um, probably not the right question for this space, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So if we, if we have institutions that are serving our community, but they're not actually doing the work, they're getting the money they're getting access to resources but they're not distributing the resources accordingly to the greater mission right and that is to support and help people who are, who are facing some degree of obstacle within the spaces why what what is stopping us from naming them
1: so that's what the RFP is really there to and designed to fix. It's designed to fix those who are not doing the work effectively, that when they do their RFP process, you should be able to see that in their numbers. Um, and they're reporting out and how, you know, the model that they say that they're that they're using, um, that, that should show itself. And that's the hope. Now, whether or not that's happening, because I'm not on the other side scoring these things. And that's how you do it with an RFP. You score the applications. They get points for each thing. If it's a woman-owned business or a minority-owned business, you get so many points. We
0: watching. already we, we jumping on that bandwagon. We you already know, know that. that that's a shit storm.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that. Uh, <laughs>
0: Sorry, whoever's listening, y'all already know I cuss and she hit the trigger. Uh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's that's how it's supposed to out itself. Got what you. We have seen happen, and I'm curious, and maybe if you've seen this too, it almost goes the other way. People who are doing the work well, but um, this if if someone if the contract holder has. Not the contract holder, the, the money holder, has a motive, then they'll take that contract from people who are doing the work really well and give it to over here who they have a partnership with, who... We'll do it for cheaper.
0: So at some capacity, we're, we're creating disparity within, again, like I said, disparity in our own spaces that are supposed to be doing the work. It makes it a little harder for those who are out here doing the work for real. We're, we're creating scarcity, right? By putting people, fitting, I guess, yeah, putting people against each other who are, should be, fo- I mean, who have the ability to really focus on serving those who are in need. Um, but instead you've got, and, and this is, I guess, maybe a leadership question because, you know, when you're in leadership and you're no longer boots on the ground doing the work, right you're probably more center focused on how do we keep funding and how do we keep growing or how do we scale or whatever those those magical words are that nonprofits use versus others but then your folks on the ground are probably feeling the pain of of depletion so to speak right both morally financially and man i i do wonder like how that also feeds back to the community that we're serving
1: you know i think that is like One of the the conversations we had before we went on mic is when people—and we we mentioned this in our last conversation, too—when people who do this work and they do it with a passion are said, that is your compensation. that You you get to go home and say, I made a difference, and therefore I can pay you nothing. Yeah. And when the people that you serve either make the same as or more than you, you're like— Mm-hmm. I also feel the same pain that you do and do not know how to help you effectively because I am in that same boat. And so that's also part of it is when you start cutting these funds, you are cutting the pay of the people who are doing the work and therefore you're demoralizing them in that way. And you are creating situations where transference can happen because mm-hmm. they're like, I also feel that pain. And gotcha.
2: or they yeah. they don't stick around and we have that high mm-hmm. turnover because you know, what what I have noticed is that the passion brings people in the door mm-hmm. and the money leads them out, like leads them out of the door, mm. right? Because they realize I can't pay my bills on passion. Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> the, right. They won't take it for my mortgage payment. Yeah, they refuse it. <laughs> they did return to sender. Um, so, and that is, I've had to have those hard conversations, you know, with an employee that, you know, I'm sorry, but your, the salary is determined by the funders and what we're able to get for it. Yeah. and there's a, there's a standard basically that they look at like across the state of how much are people in these type of positions making and then if you jump above that like that doesn't obviously look good right so i think it's just it's more of a system a systemic issue than just say one organization right it's, it has to change has to happen on that higher level to really make an impact as far as bringing up staff pay right wow.
0: So man, it's 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 such a it's such a tangled web. It it really is, and it's got to make it harder to do the work every day.
2: Yeah, um, at all
0: levels. Wow, that's that's um that's unfortunate. I, I wonder. And and so in our last podcast, you know, we we had talked to Jenny and and said, you know, have we reached out to our our local mayors? Like, if we're getting federal federal funds are being cut, and you know, of course that affects the state. But like, is there a way? About why
1: why are yeah. federal funds being cut? for victims of crime. Yeah. When uh, wh- where is that money going to instead? And why is it okay? Why is it okay to yeah. take it from the marginalized from those who have already had harm done to them? Yeah. Um so yes, so continue. But yeah, use
0: But is there is there and- alternative funding resources? Alternative ways to galvanize our local elected officials, because we, we have our own dollars in, in many cases, and I don't know if they are, but like, you know, you think about, we're sitting right now in Floyd County. So New Albany is an incorporated community, but the county itself is 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 an unincorporated space. So it's got two different funding sources. So if you're in the rural part of the county, then the county commissioners and the county council kind of govern there. But here in New Albany, the mayor governs here. Do our, our nonprofits who are in, you know, this work, um, DV work specifically, are we reaching out to our local municipalities for funding?
2: Um, that's a good question I don't have an answer for it okay um, okay primarily because like that's not my wheelhouse like as far as I like, going to do to do the funding we do have um, a development, VP and that's kind of their role to go out and build those relationships and to talk about some of those community resources that we have, like the bigger community resources. So kind of my role is really about the the programmatic side of it. So when they are uh, writing for a grant, I have to be able to show the numbers, be able to show the work that's happening. Um, So we talked about at the RFPs and all of that. So, like, we get audits. Um, I have to be able to show the, have a clean audit. And I've, under my leadership, we have passed all of them. So, Yay. I'm, you know, that's great. Congrats. Um, but, like, you know, so that's kind of my responsibility to make sure that we don't lose funding because something we're doing. OK. Right. Versus we can't control what losing funding because of economy or because of um, laws or, you know, the administration and things like that. Um, so I think that's kind of the struggle is that, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to support as best I can. But um, there's stuff that are that's still out of our control when it comes to the funding piece.
1: So if there are listeners out there who want to help, just like we said last time. I wonder if one of the action steps in the calls to action would be call your local people and identify, you know, if people are saying we need more services or, you know, then that conversation has to happen at all levels of local government and imagine what we would do in a vacuum. If families are left in situations that they can't get out and can't get safe, Mm -hmm. or at least get the support to figure out how to make a plan, I know that's a big part of what um, mobile mobile advocacy is: is let's make a plan together, and how do we stay safe, and how do you know if you're safe, and how do you know if you're not? What if there's no one out there having that conversation with these families? And if these fund if the funds continue to be cut, that could be the reality we're looking at, and that's. It's not a place that any of us want to figure out what that looks like.
0: So Zanibia, in, in programming, I, I know we're gonna have to wrap up here in a second. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, looking at the future of here in Southern Indiana, the work that you're doing, um, are there any blockages? Are there are there any blind spots as it relates to current services in the mobility space that you're looking at and saying, okay, these are things that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to counter in the near future?
2: I would say on a programmatic level, we're seeing more need around legal. Um, legal services. and you know, when someone has a, a the criminal case that's going on um, or family or you know civil, um a lot of times we see that the abuse can continue to happen through the legal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe the the person who's causing harm, perpetrator, the abuser, that they have the financial means to hire an attorney, right? So uh, that's an example of that. So, you know, we're seeing more of that need. And then just in general, I would say the the permanent housing, so the affordable housing. I, I don't know about you, but I drive around the city and I see so many houses, so many like apartments going up and I'm just like, are they affordable? Right. Can Mm -hmm. anybody, can any of the people who Mm -hmm. we serve before these? And I think that that is something that's also missing is having um, the affordable housing, because if we're if we're working with people before they actually would even get to the place of needing emergency shelter, they're going to need affordable housing. They're going to need to be able to, you know, get into a place to be able to sustain that. Um, So I think that those are kind of the things that that we're seeing um, on a program side of uh, trying to provide those services and coming against. A wall.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Something that we're all going to have to take a look at. I, I Just on the housing piece, I, we were looking at um, houses over by the mayor's office in that area. And there's a house over there. It's 700 square feet. It's three bedroom. I don't know how that's possible. And it's selling for $176,000 a year. And I said, wow. And so then we looked up the proper, you know, the rent correlation into that. And I was like, you know, that's twelve dollars to $1,300 a month in rent that they would be paying. And I remember living in New Jersey in 2001, and for a 900-square-foot apartment, my rent was 1200 When that makes sense right outside of my head, because literally we were right outside of Hoboken. But I can't imagine being a little bitty Jeffersonville or a little bitty New Albany, um, and your rent is more than $800 a month. Like, that's, you know, definitely where we know people are not making a livable wage. But I can't be—I can't imagine being in some type of trauma or some type of emergency issue— within family and I have kids and I have to meet all these different needs, um, affordable housing, I think across the board, um, is something that we have to address and, and definitely have to look at those who are, we're allowing to buy up properties independently and don't live here and then just manipulate, um, living standards like that. That's, that's just nuts. I can't imagine facing that. I, I wonder though, just cause you know, I'm an idea guy and I'm gonna just keep throwing it out there. You know, I, I wonder if this is a space where maybe the nonprofits come together in the future and build housing, right? Because we realize that this is a blockage. This is something that's going to rear its head and, and and it's already reared its head, but maybe this is something that they can control.
1: I know some nonprofits are. Mm-hmm. And then when they put up the housing and they call it affordable and it is yes. nowhere near affordable, it's it just, just like market price. But I also know that there have been some studies and some case studies recently of people who are staying together in a cohabitation space, um, you know, couples who don't have violence, but they're, instead of separating and going their, their separate ways as they, as people would have in the past, they're choosing to live together because they cannot afford and there is no housing to allow them to separate.
0: I saw that movie. It was called War of the Roses. They both died. I don't see oh. how that's safe.
1: Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, man. I didn't, no, that's... I don't think I <laughs> have right. seen that movie. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a little younger than that, I think, but (laughs) but, um, imagine though, if you're in, again, imagine if you, people who can do that because they can be civil, but imagine if you're in a space where you're not safe Mm -hmm. and you have to get out Yeah, what we are really leaving people with very few choices and very few options.
0: A lot to think about today. A lot to process.
1: It is. It is. Anivia, I know um, I would love to hear from you if people need your services um, and they need the support, uh, how do they get those? How do they
2: reach you? Yes. I'm glad you asked. Yes. Yes. So if you are listeners, if you or anyone that you love has experienced domestic violence or any of the things that we kind of talked about related to that, please reach out. We have trained advocates, second answer, 24-7 on our Crisis On. Our number is 1-844-237-2331. Um, and they'll be able to support you, get your resources or get you referred.
0: And Zineb, you're, you're going to be with us in October? Yes. Is that, is that true? Yes. So we'll get to be, so if you're if you're local and you're listening to this way before October 27th, um, <laughs> when we do RDB, our, our domestic violence um, panel discussion, um, lunch and learn and engagement, you'll have an opportunity to engage personally with all our panelists. So that'd be awesome and you're going to be there. This, is, this makes me smile.
1: Yes, you'll be able um, to ask the questions yes. that you have right now. Whatever's swirling through your head, you'll be able to ask in person.
0: True story, true story. Look, y'all know what we do
1: But how do they get... How we do it. How do they RSVP it? How do we do what we do? How do they do what we do? How How do do they RSVP for that October 27th event?
0: That's a great question. There's going to be a URL somewhere in the body of this message. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. on
0: this podcast, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, or if you're listening to it on our Facebook or our website, there is a link somewhere um, that is probably three letters or more dot eventbrite. Because I don't think I've published it yet.
1: I don't Uh, think it's been published yet. But also if you go on Common convo.
0: Yes, CommonConvo.TV. Um, you will see all our listings. You'll see every event that's coming up. You'll get an opportunity to see most of our speakers that are going to be in all our pro- projects this year. Um, and you can also follow all the podcasts there because we also publish them there as well. So, yes, Missy, there is a whole website that I never mentioned.
1: <laughs> never. There's
0: actually two. Which oh, is I scary. The,
1: I don't know about the second well, there's common
0: one. This common conversations oh, dot and know. that is only for the the podcast like it is an actual website where all the podcasts live in order for every podcast I've ever done and I can't say ever done because we've been on multiple platforms but on this particular platform which is hosted by Captivate however the common convo.tv is all the things all that the we things. have produced this year and it has been a long busy fun year so all the lunch and learns are there the YouTube channel is, is also connected there so if you want to go back and watch you can do that um, and then yes on there it says events little tab right up top It and all the all the things.
1: All the things are there. And you can RSVP and let us know you're coming, so we make sure we have food for you.
0: No, we're not feeding you. We're feeding you um, food for thought, Um, food for engagement food for the belly and food for and food for the <laughs> belly. so yes if you sign up there will be food for you so if you sign up and don't show up there's food for somebody else
1: uh, <laughs> please don't do that
0: yes <laughs> right it costs money um look good people this is common combo we appreciate you this has been a great episode a great program um and conversation about domestic violence and all the things that we face are the challenges the opportunities how we serve our community um and we're going to continue these conversations and i think more and more more that we have them, the more questions I have, and I hope the more questions you have, and that you will take this regardless of where you are in your space, whether you're in the United States or somewhere else, whether you're in Clark County or Louisville, Jefferson County, um, and you will begin to think about how we serve our community at large and build a safe space for all of us and brave spaces. So, Missy, any 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 outward words?
1: Um, other than I'm super excited to get our panelists together on October 27th. I think it's going to be really incredible. Incredible.
0: Cool beans. October 27th, keep your eye open. Um, Any last questions or or statements from you, my friend?
2: Uh, No, just thank you for the time. I'm looking forward to October as well.
0: Cool beans. Everybody, this is Common Convo. This is your boy Galego, and we are out of here. I will see y'all on the next episode. And oh, if you are listening, wink, wink, I am start recording and producing a sex version of Common Conversations um, on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of September, and this will be a whole vlog series um, that's going to be thrown out there in the world, and it's really borderline around consent, um, as well as uh, how do we have conversations about sex, pleasure with our children, with ourselves, um, we're going to tackle a lot of tabs conversation there. It's going to be fun. Um, we're going to do roughly 10 episodes. So keep your eyes and ears period for that as well. Appreciate you. Love you. Peace.
1: Bye, friends.